pardon, for our program on the new uh, payment model for Medicare nursing home services. Today I'm really thrilled that we're having a guest speaker, Toby Edelman, who's a senior policy attorney with the Center for Medicare Advocacy and um, uh, one of the leading advocates uh, for nursing home care, quality of life um, in our country for many, many years. And um, he's just had a profound impact on the lives of residents across the country. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, before we get started, I am going to, let's see, I need to mute it. Actually, I'm going to unmute everybody, pardon me. <laughs> As I mentioned before, we um, usually have Sari here who helps with, with some of this background. So apologies for my technical uh, inexpertise. But we're going to leave it open and hopefully, uh, if everyone just be quiet or star six yourself if you're, if you're doing any background noise, that would be really helpful. Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to Toby shortly. I can't hear it this time. Pardon me? Maybe I will, um, I right, want you just give me one second, please. Let me see if I can mute and then unmute Toby. Toby, can you, uh, I'm going to mute everyone. Can you press star six after I do that? Sure. Can you hear me, Richard? Yes, I can. Great. Thanks so okay. much. Okay. okay. Sorry, everyone, for that. Again, that's my um, um, little, little bit of my technical inexpertise. But welcome, everyone. Today's program is on the new payment system for nursing homes. It's called the Payment-Driven Payment Model. Um, a little bit about us, for those of you who haven't joined us before. Um, we're the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving care and quality of life for residents in nursing homes, assisted living, and other residential care facilities. And today I'm joined by Toby Edelman, who's, as I mentioned before, the senior policy attorney with the Center for Medicare Advocacy and has been a uh, leading advocate, one of the leading advocates in the country on nursing home care, quality, uh, enforcement, and other issues. And we're going to share a link at the end, or actually I'll send everyone a link at the end, excuse me, to her latest alert, which provides some more information on the subject today. A little bit about the Center for Medicare Advocacy. The Center is a national nonprofit um, organization that provides education, advocacy, and legal assistance to help older people and people with disabilities obtain access to Medicare and quality health care. The center is based in Connecticut and has a, um, a major office and presence in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. as well. So today, I'm going to provide a very brief background on the nursing home system, uh, just to give an overview of licensure and oversight, how nursing home care is paid for, and then we're going to focus on Toby's presentation on the new um, payment, excuse me, the new payment system for nursing homes, uh, particularly for Medicare nursing home services. But the reason why it's it's so important is that it goes beyond Medicare services. It's really going to impact uh, care for everyone in nursing homes. We're going to leave some time for discussion questions at the end. So a little bit of background. Um, and those of you who have attended previous programs have seen uh, some of this before, although I did update it a bit for this program. So as um, I'm sure most of you know, the vast majority of nursing homes are licensed to participate in Medicaid and or Medicare. Most of them participate in both. And by participate, that's a, um, a government word in, in essence that means that they take Medicaid and or Medicaid funds for some portion of their resident care. In order to participate in Medicaid or Medicare, a facility agrees to meet all the standards provided for in the federal 1987 nursing home reform law. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. We were, I think we were joined by some people who were not muted. I'm going to, Toby, I, I'm sorry to bother, but if you could we'll do the star six again. Um, let me just mute and unmute everyone again. Sorry for that, everyone. I'm here, Richard. Great. Thanks, Toby. And sorry for that interruption, everybody. Uh, so I'm going to move ahead. 
So a little bit about the nursing home reimbursement system. So the Medicaid is the primary payer of long-term care services in nursing homes. I think it's about 65% of nursing home care now is paid for by Medicaid. It's for people with limited income, and Medicaid is jointly funded by the individual states and the federal government. Medicare, on the other hand, is the primary payer of short-term care rehab services in nursing homes. It's mostly for people who are over age 65. Uh, it also pays for care for some younger people who, um, who have a disability status. There are four parts to Medicare. Part A covers hospital, uh, inpatient, formally admitted only, um, skilled nursing care only after being formally admitted to a hospital for three days and not for custodial care, and for hospice services. So there's I mean, we could have programs just on what Part A and Part B and Part C and Part D cover, but I just want to give everyone a quick overview here. Part B covers outpatient services, including some provider services, while inpatient at a hospital, outpatient hospital charges, most provider office visits, and most professionally administered prescription drugs. Part C, which is also known as Medicare Advantage, refers to plans offered by private companies these plans, in essence, replace Parts A and Parts B, and they are required to provide at least the same service coverage as Parts A and B. They often include the benefits of Part D, and they always have an annual out-of-pocket spending limit, which A and B lack. Uh, Part D covers most um, uh, self-administered prescription drugs for people. And then private pay is the other way in which nursing homes are paid. There's a minority of nursing home care is paid for privately, either by individuals um, through their assets or through long-term care or other health insurance. So I'm going to turn it over to Toby now, who's going to talk about the patient-driven payment model. Okay. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Toby. Well, Medicare Part A is actually in the traditional Medicare program is the highest payer of all of the payers that Richard described. So the hierarchy is traditional Medicare, Medicare Advantage, private pay, Medicaid. So facilities really like the traditional Medicare Part A coverage. It, it's, they can make as much as $700, $800 a day, a day, and the average is about $450 a day. So this is a lot of money for them. Two weeks ago, on October 1st, CMS dramatically changed the way Medicare pays uh, nursing homes under Part A. It replaced the system that had been in place for about 20 years, the Resource Utilization Group system, with a new program called Patient-Driven Payment Model, the PDPM. PDPM is said to base payment on resident characteristics rather than on services provided. So we'll talk a little bit about what that means as we go on. But the nursing home industry responds very directly to the financial incentives in the reimbursement system, and they responded instantaneously to these financial incentives on October 1st, as we'll talk about. So it's really important for us to know what's happening, because even though eligibility and coverage rules for residents have not changed, the financial incentives have changed. And so facilities are going to change practices and have already started changing their practices. Next slide, please. The resource utilization group system uh, had two categories of residents, uh, two case mix adjusted categories, nursing and rehabilitation. Rehabilitation um, was the therapy services, and there was a very strong belief, a very pervasive belief, uh, and also found in a lot of reports, like the Inspector General and the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, that facilities were providing too much therapy. They were overutilizing therapy services, or at least billing for a lot of therapy services for residents under a Part A stay. In fiscal year 2017, for example, CMS says that skilled nursing facilities build Medicare for the top three highest of the 66 categories that were available under RUGS for, for 60% of the claims. So they were clearly skewing their assessment to get the highest rates possible. In addition, there were a number of cases under the False Claims Act, particularly against nursing home chains for overbilling Medicare 
in therapy uh, and for fraudulent billing, for billing for services that weren't provided at all. A lot of concern about this. The Inspector General talked about this, issued reports saying that the chains are misusing Medicare. So there was a very strong desire to change the system uh, quite, quite dramatically. Next slide, please. What CMS did was actually make a 180-degree turn from PDPM. It's a complete about-face for how Medicare pays. In the 20, uh, 2018 final regulations that were published, CMS says in its own uh, impact analysis table that it will pay less for residents who receive any therapy and more for residents who receive no therapy at all. Now, this is a little bit strange considering what the eligibility rules are. There are two primary ways for beneficiaries to qualify for Part A coverage of a nursing home stay. Either they need skilled nursing services, skilled nurses, professional nurses, seven days a week, or rehabilitation services, five days a week. So if that's one of the primary ways of getting uh, Part A coverage, it's quite bizarre now for CMS to say, we're going to pay more for people who get no therapy at all. Next slide, please. So there were, I want to describe briefly what RUGS did, how it worked, and then what P PDPM does in contrast. So as I said, there were just two case mixed adjusted categories, nursing and rehabilitation. Nursing included both nursing services from professional nurses, paraprofessional nursing services, and also non-therapy ancillaries, which are primarily drug costs. Rehabilitation was where most people, by the end of the RUG system, more than 90% of Medicare beneficiaries in a Part A stay were qualifying because they were getting therapy. The more minutes of therapy a facility provided per day, the higher the daily reimbursement rate it would receive for that person. So CMS wanted to change this system, saying we're paying too much money. Um, MedPAC, Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, is saying nursing homes were making over 10% margins, profit margins, for more than 20 years. In 2017, nursing homes made 19% profit on Medicare. They said, too much. We just can't go on like this. So they had an, uh, a research group, Acumen, develop a new system, and they had four technical expert panels. Um, that's supposed to be bring together people who know something about the topic. And uh, what I, you know, you're allowed to um, nominate yourself. So I nominated myself for those technical expert panels. The first one was on therapy. The second one was on nursing. The third one was supposed to be putting the system together there was a lot of opposition among the members of the technical expert panels. And those were, the members were researchers, the therapy associations, the, the nursing home trade associations, and advocates. And people were very concerned. I'd never been on a technical expert panel before where the groups met and said, we don't like what's going on. So they, the uh, acumen made some changes and we had a fourth technical expert panel. And they came up with a system, which was called Resident Classification System. CMS published it as a proposed rule in 2017. That did not fly very well. People didn't like it, so they did away with that one and came up with the PDPM. Next slide, please. So this is how PDPM works. Now, one of the things we were told at the technical expert panels is that they wanted to simplify rugs, but this system is far more complicated than RUGS ever was. So instead of the, uh, instead of the two case mix adjusted uh, components, the nursing and rehabilitation that we had under RUGS, there are now six federal base payment rates. So the, the, therapy, uh, the therapy was divided into the three types of therapy, physical, occupational, and speech-language pathology, and the nursing was divided into its two components, nursing and non-therapy ancillaries. That's, again, primarily drugs, and one component is not case mix adjusted. Next slide, please. So each of these five mix adjusted components has its own case mix groups. 
So you can see that physical therapy and occupational therapy each have 16. Speech language pathology has 18. For nursing, there are 25 case mix groups. And then for the drugs, there are six case mix groups. Far more complicated than having just nursing and rehabilitation. Next slide, please. So what CMS does then is calculate the case mix component by multiplying the case mix index by the component federal base payment rate. Very, very complicated. Hmm. Next slide, please. The next thing that CMS does is apply a variable per day adjustment schedule. So it reduces the daily payment for three of the case mix categories based on a sliding scale. So for physical therapy and occupational therapy, uh, for every seven days after day 20, the rate goes down 2%, separately for physical therapy and occupational therapy. For drugs, because they realize that we're describing at the technical expert panel that the, the nursing homes buy the drugs the first day, get the drugs the first day, so the big cost is the first couple of days of a residency. This variable per day adjustment for the drug component declines 3% beginning on day four of the Part A stay. Now, under RUGS, there were separate assessments um, on day five, 14, 30, 60, 90 to see where the, where the residents fit in the assessment schedule. Here we have only one assessment on day five and then application of this per day adjustment schedule. Next slide, please. So CMS takes these five case mix adjusted components, adds them to the non-case mix adjusted component, and comes up with a total daily rate for the resident. Extremely complicated, very confusing. Maybe they think there's so many components that people can't game the system, but it's, uh, it, it's not 66 at all. It's thousands at this point. Next slide, please. So when CMS published the final rules in 2018, it did something that was very unusual. It had two tables at the back of the regulations showing the impact on residents and a separate table, table 38, the impact on facilities. The way I read it, it's who wins and who loses, Where, which residents get more money, which facilities get more money, uh, which residents bring in a lower reimbursement rate, which facilities will get a lower rate. It was a, a shocking set of tables, but very instructive to us about what is the impact of this new system. Next slide, please. So in the Federal Register, what CMS said in words was the, re the rate would be higher for a resident if the resident has a high drug cost, gets expensive services, nursing services, is eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, needs an IV medication, has end-stage renal disease or diabetes or a wound infection, has an amputation or needs prosthesis care, and was in the hospital for, as an inpatient for a long period of time. That's what the, the word said in the preamble. Next slide, please. But if we look at the, at the table itself, what it says is there's a higher rate if the resident is male as opposed to female, young, under 65, so a person who is qualifying for Medicare by reason of disability, there's a higher rate. If the, if the stay in the skilled nursing facility covered by Medicare Part A is up to 15 days, after 15 days, the rate is not going to be higher. Now, what we've been experiencing with RUGS is that there was a people considered it a 20-day benefit period because there was a very large copayment that began on day 21. The new system is really intended, and we ask questions about this at the technical expert panel, you are shortening the reimbursement, the covered stay, and they said yes. That is part of the intention to reduce the length of stay that Medicare Part A will pay for. There's also a higher rate if the person is in the hospital for a very long period of time. And they say explicitly if the person receives no therapy, not physical, occupational, or speech, no therapy at all, that's going to be a higher rate if the person is severely 
cognitively impaired, needs a ventilator. And there are some other factors, but those are some of the key ones. Um, who will be most valuable to facilities in terms of the PDPM system? I really incentive. Oh, excuse me. I, I'm sorry, Toby. I think someone has joined us and is speaking. If you could, uh, Marlene Werner, if you could please mute your phone for pressing star six. Thank you. Sorry, Toby. Uh, that's fine. Um, and next slide, please, uh, Richard. So also, you know, like who, who gets a lower rate? Well, a female. There will be a lower rate for females under PDPM. If the person is over age, 65, uh, over age 90, the rate will be lower. If the person stays in a Medicare Part A covered stay in the skilled nursing facility for 31 days or more, the rate will be lower. Now, under the law, the benefit period is a maximum of 100 days. But PDPM, CMSS, if under PDPM, if somebody is there 31 days or more, the rate's going to be lower. If the person was only in the inpatient hospital, acute care hospital, as an inpatient for three days, not more than three days, that, and that's what's required, a three-day inpatient stay, the rate will be lower. A person receiving all three types of therapy will get a lower rate. If the person is cognitively intact or only mildly or moderately impaired, lower rate, and if the person doesn't need a ventilator or infection isolation. Next slide, please. So the table or the, the preamble language about facilities, which facilities will make more money? This is their language, a high proportion of non-rehabilitation patients. If it's a small facility, nonprofit, government-owned, hospital-based and swing bed facilities. Now, the hospital-based is a very interesting issue. When the resource utilization group system, the RUG system, came into place 20, 20 years ago, uh, the discussion was leveling the playing field because hospital-based facilities took more severely uh, disabled residents, provided somewhat different services, got a higher rate than freestanding facilities. But the RUG system made everybody get the same rate, hospital-based and freestanding. And as a result, a lot of hospital-based facilities closed their distinct part skilled nursing facilities. So CMS is concerned about that and wants to get those facilities back. It's a really interesting idea because they, they are somewhat different. But these are the ones that uh, will get higher reimbursement according to the preamble. Next slide, please. Table 38 in the 2018 final regulation says, uh, if you look at the table itself, that the rate is higher if, if the facility is in rural west, north, central, whatever that's supposed to mean, if 90 to 100% of the residents are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, if only or not more than 10% of the stays are 100 days, which is the maximum under the law, and if 75 to 90% are not rehabilitation people. That's a higher rate. Next slide, please. Facilities, however, will get a lower rate, urban mid-Atlantic facility, if fewer than 25% of the residents are eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, if as many as a quarter of the covered stays are 100 days, and if, um, less, if, if only 0 to 10% are non-rehabilitation. So it's very clear what's going on and who's benefiting and who's not benefiting in terms of uh, residents and facilities. Next slide, please. So I was trying to think about what are the benefits. Are there some possible good things coming out of this that we haven't had before that we could, you know, say, okay, PDPM is doing something good here. Now, you have to realize I did these slides before October 1st, and so you'll see what happened on October 1st. But I was trying to be positive. What, what are we getting that's good? So one thing I thought, well, residents who had been hard to place before might be easier to gain to get admit, admitted to a nursing home, particularly residents who need ventilators. CMS says in, in that table um, that the rate will be 22% higher if the resident 
needs a ventilator. Now, we know many people needing ventilators have not been able to get into nursing homes at all. So that seemed like maybe a good, a good thing. But my concern was whether residents who needed ventilators would actually get good care. We know there are a lot of problems of infections, particularly with residents who use ventilators. Next slide, please. And just before I wrote this slide, there was this article in the New York Times, very, very troubling. Nursing homes are a breeding ground for a fatal fungus. What that article found is that there was a fungus that generally kills people within 90 days, and that it's very prevalent in nursing home residents, especially those who need ventilators. And what the New York Times said is that the two basic reasons why this is such a problem in nursing homes um, are that there are poor infection control practices in nursing homes and low staffing levels. So that's extremely alarming to me. We're going to have, we're giving a financial incentive to, to facilities to admit people who have ventilators, and yet when they, when they are in nursing homes with ventilators, there are serious infection control and staffing problems, and there's this very deadly fungus that's killing people. So, so what seemed like maybe a possible benefit of PDPM got reversed by that article when I, when I saw that. Next slide, please. A second benefit, I thought, well, maybe we will get some improved staffing out of this. Maybe there will be improved nurse staffing. I mean, this whole system is supposed to be budget neutral. We see that, that we're taking money out of, out of the therapy. We're not paying based on therapy. So will the money go into nursing? Um, will nurse staffing increase? Will registered nurse staffing increase? If the important assessments have to be done within five days, because that's the basic assessment that will be done with resident, for a resident for the entire Part A stay, um, we know that facilities admit a lot of people on weekends. That's when there are a lot of admissions. Will we see more registered nurses? So I thought, well, maybe we will see some improvement in registered nurse staffing and staffing generally. Next slide, please. But the problem with that possible benefit is that the rug component covered both nursing and drugs, as I said before, and the way they distributed that nursing component in PDPM was only 57% of the nursing component going to nursing and 43% going to drugs. So it's not clear that there's really going to be a lot more nurse staffing under PDPM. That seems like a real question. Next slide, please. A third possible benefit was that depression, which we know is um, underdiagnosed and undertreated in nursing homes, um, maybe there will be more of it, more identification and treatment of depression, because one of the trade press articles that I have a, a link to on the next page uh, says that this is $43 a day uh, and it could also be a longer length of stay if depression is identified. So this could be a good financial reason to identify residents as having depression. Um, we're concerned, I think, that people might get identified as having depression uh, because, because there's so much money involved in, in getting that diagnosis and treatment. And, you know, we know we've seen assessments um, certainly in the antipsychotic drugs related to what's going, you know, there, there's an assessment of uh, having schizophrenia because that gets people out of the inappropriate use of antipsychotic drugs. Uh, so assessments do follow money and we're concerned. I think what could be a possible benefit might be inappropriate if, if the facilities are doing it only for the money. Um, the trade press also suggests that cognitive impairment uh, is worth money, $21 a day and longer lengths of stay. So next slide, please, Richard. This is the article that made this point, treating depression could emerge as a PDPM linchpin, both for payments and better outcomes. So these are possible benefits that also have some downsides as well. Next slide, please. I think the concerns are that the financial incentives are 
are changing tremendously, and we're concerned about how skilled nursing facilities will change their admissions practices and their treatment practices to maximize profits. And the trade press is very open about that, saying nursing homes do follow the money and they will change, they will change their practices if they're to, to maximize profits. So the first concern, I want to talk about several concerns. Next slide, please. The first one and the most immediate one is therapy. We were very worried even before we saw the system uh, implemented because of, because of what CMS said in the preamble and in those tables about which residents would bring in more money and which would bring in less money. So seeing that no therapy brings in more money and three types of therapy, the rate gets lower, we were worried about what was going to happen to therapy whether people would get therapy, whether they would get individual therapy. PDPM allows up to 25% of therapy, any of those therapies, to be provided in group or concurrent settings instead of individual therapy. Under RUGS, 99% of therapy was provided on an individual basis. And CMS says in the preamble, that's the preferred way, that's the way it should be provided. We expect that to happen. But nursing homes can provide 25% in group or concurrent. Now, group is one therapist with up to six residents doing the same or a similar therapeutic task. Concurrent therapy is one therapist with a number. It doesn't specify the number of residents doing different therapeutic tasks. If a facility exceeds the 25% cap, it will receive from CMS what, it, what it's calling a non-fatal warning edit. That means nothing really happens. There is no financial penalty to, to uh, exceeding the 25% cap. So these were the concerns we had before this system went into place. Well, what happened October 1st, immediately on October 1st, is that nursing homes and therapy companies that provide therapy on a contract basis to nursing homes began laying off therapists nationwide, cutting back their hours, and they were told, many therapists were told, that they had, it was mandatory that they had to switch their residents from individual to group or concurrent therapy. The trade press started reporting that October 1st, that there were layoffs all across the country. And the Physical Therapy Association and the Occupational Therapy Association were alarmed by the rapidity of these layoffs. I mean, it was really quite brazen. The money is not in therapy, and so hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of therapists lost their jobs. So obviously the implications for residents are very troubling. Next slide, please. Now, CMS said uh, it was going to monitor what kinds of therapy and the mode of therapy that residents received by adding something, to, uh, adding new items to the discharge assessment, the assessment that's done when somebody is discharged from Medicare. So they do have the possibility of monitoring the decline in therapy, but the question that we had before October 1st was whether CMS would actually do it and act on it. Um, that seemed to be a concern. We don't really know. Next slide, please. As much as we were concerned about therapy in general, we were especially concerned about maintenance therapy uh, that was confirmed by GIMO. That's a nationwide class action that the Center for Medicare Advocacy brought and settled with the federal government in 2013. And that it covered nursing homes, home health and outpatient therapy, and it confirmed that Medicare covers maintenance therapy. That means therapy that, uh, and nursing, uh, both, professional nursing, professional therapy services that are necessary for a resident or a patient to maintain function or to prevent or slow decline or deterioration. It's been very hard getting GIMO implemented at all, we thought, with the switch to PDPM and the, pretty much the assault on therapy, that it would be even more difficult to get maintenance therapy uh, going forward. 
So we were quite alarmed about it. So last week, as we saw the October 1st uh, you know, rollout of this new system and the loss of therapists across the country, we put out an alert, and Richard's going to send a link to everybody. This is just something we send out um, every Wednesday or Thursday free to anybody who's interested. Uh, just sign up on our website. So we have a number of issues. This is the one that we wrote about um, nursing home residents and therapy under the new Medicare reimbursement system, the new payment system, because we were concerned about, you know, what, sh what should residents do? There's still eligibility and coverage hasn't, hasn't changed. People are still, you know, they become eligible if they need therapy five days a week. What's happening? So we wanted to think about what people can do, uh, what they can do about this. Um, and so this, this alert quotes some language from the preamble, which could be useful to people. Um, talking to the facility, if the facility says, we want to cut back on your therapy, or now you're going to have group therapy, uh, you might want to have a care planning meeting to talk about what's going on. Because if it's in the care plan to have therapy five days a week, nothing changed from September 30th to October 1st. Residents still needs that, still qualifies for it, should still be getting it. So what the preamble, there's some useful language in the preamble that says, this is from CMS explaining what the regulations mean, group therapy is not appropriate for either all patients or for all conditions, and it's primarily effective as a supplement to individual therapy. They continue to state in all of the preambles and all of the language that primary, the primary therapy mode and the standard of care of therapy in nursing homes should be individual therapy, that they still keep insisting that that's what it should be. And they say that the, the facility should include in the patient's plan of care an explicit justification for the use of group rather than individual or concurrent therapy and what that description has to include is an explanation of the specific benefits to that particular person of having group therapy. You can't just say group therapy. They've got to explain why it's appropriate for this person and why it would benefit this person. And the person has a right to agree or not. CMS has also put out a lot of frequently asked questions that explain what the new system is like, and here's what they talk, say about therapy. PDPM does not change the care needs of SNF patients, which should be the primary driver of care decisions, including the type, duration, and intensity of skilled therapies made on behalf of SNF patients. So we should be insisting and talking about this, uh, saying people need what they needed before, they need it now, and we need to talk about it, not just automatically switch them to something else. And uh, I think the advocates for residents should know that we are working with the National Therapy Associations, the American Physical Therapy Association, and the American Occupational Therapy Association, um, because they are working together very closely and monitoring PDPM, and we're working with them to try to make sure that residents get what they need. Uh, the American Physical Therapy Association's one pager, which we can send you as well. The first, um, it says what did, what did change is like a patient focus, but what didn't change, first thing, patient needs. Medically necessary care as a baseline standard. So they recognize as well that people are entitled to the therapy that they need that is medically appropriate for them, and people can't just be willy-nilly shifted to group or concurrent therapy and lose their therapy even though financial incentives for facilities are elsewhere. Uh, next slide, please. There's some other concerns that I think we would have. Uh, they're not about resident care, but I think, you know, concerns about what is going on. Um, PDPM uses only the five-day assessment, not those additional assessments. The reason they claim they wanted to get rid of those assessments and come, come up with a variable adjustment uh, is to reduce paperwork burden, treating assessments as a paperwork burden, as opposed to trying to get, for this purpose, an accurate assessment for payment purposes. Now, all the assessments of um, 
from the Nursing Home Reform Act from over 87 continues. So there still has to be an assessment, and they still have to do significant change assessments. Those don't change. That's all still there. This is just the additional assessments that the RUG system had to try to make sure the payments were accurate. But we're worried about uh, gaming of, of this assessment because it's just a five-day assessment now that PDPM will use for the entire Part A stay. There can be something called an interim payment assessment. If the residence needs change very, very dramatically, then, then the facility can do a new, an entirely new assessment. But the final rules, one of the few changes from the proposed rules in 2018, did not have any criteria for IPA. So we don't know if facilities will actually do additional assessments and say, wait a minute, this resident has changed so dramatically, we need to do an entirely new assessment and restart the clock. Don't know if they will do it or not. But that's a possibility. Uh, next slide, please. So finally, of course, the concern is about uh, nursing. Aside from doing the five-day assessment, which are so critical to PDPM, will there be sufficient reimbursement for nursing? That's obviously the most important predictor of good care for residents, having sufficient numbers of nurses. So last slide. Uh, next slide, please. Um, on balance, I think um, we have a lot of concerns about what this new system is doing. We believe that facilities might change their admissions practices, whom they will admit, not just not want therapy people, but maybe admit people who have ventilators, admit people who are very seriously cognitively impaired, wherever uh, the reimbursement financial incentives will skew, not totally change, but, but can skew certainly around the edges, admissions practices of nursing homes. And then we're concerned about what happens once they have residents. Will they really provide appropriate therapy to residents, enough therapy for residents? Um, will it all be group therapy or concurrent therapy? Or will there be a lot of group and concurrent therapy? Up to 25% is considered permissible, but will they do more when there's no consequence for doing less. Uh, so those are the concerns. That's what PDPM looks like. I think we'll have a better sense as it goes on, as it goes on uh, what the impact is on admissions and uh, practices within the facility. Um, but I think it's something we need to be aware of and monitor very carefully and, and work with others who are equally concerned. The therapy associations are very concerned. So Richard, I think it's time for some questions if people want to talk about what they're seeing already and what they're hearing. Great. So um, thanks so much, Toby. That was that, that was really um, so interesting um, and informative. So uh, if anyone wants to ask Toby a question, please press star six to unmute yourself. And then when if you finish, please press star six again. Does anyone have any uh, questions? Get uh, Richard. Yes. Hi, it's Charles Gorgi. Hi. Hi, Charles. Uh, a couple of questions. Um, so, since uh, therapy and rehab are no longer going to be no longer going to reign supreme, uh, will this have an impact on the trend of facilities to who are, are, are really uh, reducing their their long term slots in favor of short term ones and using rehab and kind of phasing the long-term thing out. Will, will we see changes in that? And the other question I have is if uh, male admissions are getting a higher reimbursement rate, is that going to incentivize residents to favor male admissions over female? And why is, that, why is there a difference in the first place? Well, those are really good questions. Um, I think, you know, nursing homes really do want that med the traditional Medicare Part A resident because it is, it's such a high rate that gets paid um, and it's the highest of, of all. So if they're not going to be getting the highest rate for therapy anymore, they're going to shift. I mean, that's, I think that's what we're going to see. Now the question is, you know, what kind of therapy will people get when that's still a basis for getting Medicare Part A coverage? I mean, they can't really eliminate the therapy services for people, but they can shift to uh, at least up to 25% to, 
to group and concurrent, which of course saves them a lot of money. Um, I have no idea why why males get a higher rate. I, that's just what they say, but I don't know what the basis for that is. Uh, why younger people and males um, get a higher rate? I don't know. It's a good question to ask CMS. Thanks, Charles. Uh, does Thanks. anyone else have a question? Uh, yeah, this is Mark Kister at the DOH. Hi, Mark. Hey, how yeah. are you? Very, very good presentation. I wanted to know how are you going to get uh, feedback from people about the effects of these changes? I mean, obviously, we'll, we're kind of monitoring these two at the state, but do you have mm -hmm. a, way, a way, to, a systematic way to get feedback from people? Well, I know that the therapy associations uh, immediately got together and have been sending information to CMS. Um, that was a question I got. Have we heard from any residents or families? And I said, no, we haven't heard. I, I don't know if people know yet what's happening um, or if it's happening on an, you know, a, at an individual facility level. It must be happening somewhere because the therapists are losing their jobs. But um, do you have suggestions about how we get feedback? I think it's a very, it's a very good question because we want to say this is not good. I mean, CMS yeah. is going to know what's happening if they do the monitoring they claim they're going to do from the discharge right. assessment. They will know how many minutes and what type of therapy. Uh, right. So they claim so, they're going to look at that, but, okay. you know, that's a long, that could be a long time away. Right. Yeah. No, I, I don't have any suggestions. I thought maybe if, you, if we start hearing from families or residents or uh, ombudsmen or some other way that we can, you know, work together on this. Because I, I, we're very unsure exactly what the, what the real impact of this is going to be. You know, I just don't know. So I think we're going to have to see it work for a month or two or a couple months and then maybe uh, figure that out. But, yeah, so I was yeah. just trying to figure out if there's a, maybe we could talk in a couple months or there's a systematic way we could do this. Well, that's, I think that's a really good idea. I mean, I think the first important thing is that everybody at least be aware that the system has changed and the incentives have changed and, you know, be attentive to it. But, you know, it's, I think we do need to figure out a way to get um, systematic feedback from residents and their families and their advocates about what's going on. Thanks, Mark. Um, one question I have that, that's... Um, Kind of uh, a little bit related to that is I was wondering, uh, Toby, what your thoughts are in terms of the ability of the OIG or, or um, aud you know, state or federal auditors to uh, track what is going on. Because, uh, you know, now we know, you know, they had, a, they had the ability to find out what exactly the therapy services were and, and, and what payments were put in for them, or what, what, you know, um, uh, what requests for payments were put in for them, et cetera. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, they, you know, they do what they call data mining, and certainly the Inspector General does that. You know, they, they can figure out which facilities are providing excessive or uh, inadequate therapy. I mean, they, they do have ways of tracking the data, but, you know, we, we don't really want to have to wait. I mean, I think it's important that people try to push back if in a care planning meeting if they're being told that yes. you know that they're going to lose therapy but yes the auditors could do could do that they could get the discharge assessment data from CMS and and use that effectively even if CMS doesn't it um, seems I, you know, to I me like it would be harder will, yeah like that there'll be that'll be more challenging for them just just based upon you know thinking about the OIG reports and the GAO reports etc that I've read over the years it just seems like there'll be less information about what the services people are getting. I mean, I think you already have that to some extent with the um, shift to concurrent and group therapy. You know what I mean? That how is that meshing with someone's, um, you know, the services and their needs, and how are you how are you able to connect that with the data on their MDS, et cetera? Well, um, I guess I, the only way they'll really know that because they're not going to be facilities won't be putting that in for their rugs categories, that's right. not going to be, yeah. you know, that's, so they're not going to get it at the beginning. They won't be able to follow, follow it, but the only way they could get it is from the discharge assessment if the facilities, you know, did that accurately and said this is what we've done. But it, it doesn't, you're right, it's not prospective. It doesn't tell you what, what's coming. Right, and it doesn't seem to also have that, as you had mentioned before in, in, in your program, 
the, um, the set dates of when they were going to be, um, you know, with the PDPM, when, when they were going to be, um, uh, I forgot how you put it, I'm sorry, but, you know. Well, they we, just have the one five-day assessment, yes, that's it. Yes, thank you. Yes. Yes, so, thank however you. long, the ben, even if the benefit period is 100 days, all they'll do for purposes of reimbursement is the five-day assessment. So that, you know, that's a separate, it's, it's like the nursing home reform law assessments, but it was for reimbursement purposes. So the other assessments continue. I guess we could still, you know, if we compared those assessments, what the assessments indicate, what the person needs, and then compare those assessments, the, the nursing home reform assessments, with the discharge assessments and see that people didn't get anything or got very limited therapy, um, that would be, you know, that's a problem. You know, like our GMO concern is frequently that facilities will say, well, you're not improving, which, of course, is what they're absolutely not. That's not the standard. The standard isn't, are you improving? But the people who win those appeals are families that have agreed to pay uh, for therapy, and then the resident um, stays in the facility as a private pay resident and continues to get therapy at that point, five days a week, um, and then it turns out that the person really did improve, but it just took longer wow. than the facility said. So I, I'm concerned now that the benefit period is really getting reduced to 15 days. I mean, that's, that's where the money starts going down. Uh, it was already too short for a lot of people who need more time, more time to get therapy every day in order to benefit sufficiently and really go home. Um, they're, going to, they're shortening it, and that was and that was a very deliberate purpose, at least according to their to the CMS's contractor acumen. That yeah, we're we're going to shorten the benefit period. So it's a problem, definitely a problem for people. Uh, but I, you're right. I think the takeaway here for for a, a lot of people in our audience is that you know is to advocate at care planning you know meeting to to be aware of, of your rights to therapy. And the GMO case, of course, is so important to that. And um, for those of you who are having issues with accessing therapy services, the it's medicareadvocacy.org, as it states at the bottom of the uh, screen here, that um, uh, there's so many resources uh, on GMO. Obviously, the center has been, yeah. been the leader on that. Yeah, but we have a lot of self-help packets and materials that people to help them do appeals. I mean, none of that has changed, really. That's, I can't emphasize that enough. Eligibility, you still need therapy five days a week. That's how to qualify for a Part A stay. And the coverage rules haven't changed. Nursing home reform law is still there. The only thing that's changed is how the facilities are paid. But if they respond very dramatically to the financial incentives, which they did October 1st by laying off so many, you know, thousands of therapists, it obviously affects what happens to residents very dramatically. So that's, you know, we want to make sure that people know what they're entitled to. And if, if it's appropriate to have group therapy, that's okay. But, you know, CMS insists that really most people should be getting uh, individual therapy and the group therapy should just be a supplement, an adjunct, not a replacement. So whatever is medically appropriate, uh, you know, for the resident is what the resident should be getting. Thanks. Uh, any other questions? Okay, Toby, I know you have a couple of things you wanted to plug in with people on on this uh, slide. I don't know if you could see. Okay, Excuse I'm sorry. Me. Let's take one more I'll question. Sorry, hi. This is Barbara Willamy with Umbrella Care Management. Um, I have a quick question, Toby. Um, Regarding the 20-day uh, stay that you have to be covered in full by Medicare um, mm -hmm. for your SNF um, stay for subacute rehab, you were stating before that they're no longer going to cover that full 20 days. The no, they would cover it. No, oh, they, they would. No, no, they'll still cover the first 20 days. It's just that on day 15. Uh, the reimbursement's going to start going down. I so see. it'll be okay. covered, but it won't be as much. So the financial incentive is to reduce the length of stay. So when that so was described, uh, yeah, it's not that it's not covered. It is still covered. All of those okay. rules are still the same. You okay. know, all of those things are the same. But the facility will 
probably, it depends upon how all of those case mix adjustments are done and what the categories, and there's so many of them, you know, it's just hard to predict. With rugs, there were 66. Everybody knew where everybody was. But right. now there, there are thousands. So you still get the 20 days, but just at day 15, um, the rate CMS says will be going down. So do you so it's really dramatically the, less. Do you think the copayment will go up then for patients? No. Starting the day is still going to be the same. It'll still be the it same is. on day 21 as it was before because that's not changed. I see. That's, okay. That's tied to the hospital. That's tied to the hospital uh, payment. So it's not related to uh, the Medicare reimbursement system for the skilled nursing facility. Okay, got it. Thank you very. Well, well, actually, from day twenty-one to day one hundred in a skilled nursing facility, they were the copayment because Medicare does not pay in full. Right after day exactly. twenty. So right. I guess I'm just thinking: Are they going to increase the copayment to the patient as not to lose any more money? No, no. Okay. It's not so there. Nursing homes can't decide right. what the copayment is. Medicare decides what it is. Got it. So All righty. Thank it will, you. It will be the same. Sure. So we have about five minutes left. What I'd like to do is um, Toby's going to talk about a couple of other issues that we've been working on um, and plug in on. And then I just want to mention before we end some of the resources that we have, have put together with the center that um, are available on our website. So I'm going to direct you to those um, after Toby plugs in with you on these key issues. Thanks. Oh, uh, Richard, I didn't know we were talking about these key issues as well. Um, oh, yeah, I don't know if Dar is on the line, but... Well, I could do um, that. Um, yeah, sure, well, so we, so yeah, just a couple of things that, that we've been in, right. in, in um, the center and LTCCC alongside with California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform and the Consumer Voice and Justice in Aging have been working on um, several issues about which we're really concerned on the federal level. Um, one of them is the proposal to reduce survey frequency for so-called top-performing facilities. And this is something that we've heard from, from CMS and in, in some other quarters that, frankly, at least as far as I'm concerned, is um, one of the most alarming things that's going on uh, right now for nursing home residents. And the proposal is that uh, you know, nursing homes that have higher ratings would be surveyed less frequently frequently, excuse me, uh, as mm -hmm. little as once every three years. And the issue for us is that the um, one is that, um, you know, the, the ratings for nursing homes, the way we uh, are able to measure quality in nursing homes is much better at identifying poorly performing nursing homes than it is at identifying good nursing homes. So in essence, if you're at, looking at a one or two, or I would say even a three-star facility, that's you, you, you probably have significant reason to be concerned, whereas you're looking at a four or five star facility, um, it doesn't mean that you're going to get superb care, but it means that essentially that if they have problems, they have not been found. And, and Dara, who's, who's, um, who works with both Toby and myself, uh, we put together a, he writes and we, and we published a joint newsletter um, called the Elder Justice No Harm Newsletter, which looks at a lot of these deficiencies that facilities are cited in, some of them, including in four- and five-star facilities, are quite harrowing, but because they weren't cited as harm, those facilities are still considered to be top-performing. Uh, second part is special focus facilities, which is... Can I, I just add one thing to that? You sure. know, what, what CMS is saying, we could rely on the complaint system uh, instead of having an annual survey, so that means, you know, residents and their families would have to file a complaint with the health department and have this, you know, have the health department come in and do an additional survey. And there are a number of recent reports by state auditors saying states have problems getting out, classifying the complaints, going out quickly enough, evaluating quickly enough. So the complaint system is not a substitute for an annual survey. They serve sort of different functions and both are necessary. And because of the recent uh, reports from the Government Accountability Office and the Inspector General, especially the GAO, saying that four- and five-star facilities have 
harm deficiencies, abuse deficiencies, this is a serious problem. We, we don't think that, that we can let these so-called top performers go three years without a survey. So, sorry, I just yeah, wanted thanks. to add That's that. a great addition, Toby. Uh, so I'm going to move ahead, actually, to the, um, yeah. these are a couple of the pieces that we have. This is our joint statement, the LTCCC and the center statement on the patient-driven payment model. It gives some highlights about our concerns. This was going, again, as Toby mentioned earlier, going in because we're at the very beginning of the implementation of this program around the country. Um, here is an issue alert that we, again, just issued jointly in the past week. It's available on our website um, on Medicare, Medicare, excuse me, skilled therapy under PGPM. And this one we actually just posted today. As um, many of you know, we do fact sheets on, on, on all issues that we identify as relevant. And these are very simplified for people who are working with residents, people who are concerned about uh, what is going on to give them some basic information about what the standards of care are and how they can advocate. So um, we have these fact sheets and that's up as well on our website. Uh, we don't have everyone's email address, so before you go, I would say if you are not on our listserv, to please email info at lt, as in Tom, ccc.org and just let us know if you want to receive the alert that Toby um, mentioned earlier on. Uh, lastly, our next program will be on November 19th at 1 p.m., and we're going to talk about some recent updates to Nursing Home Compare, uh, and there have been some major updates, uh, actually, so uh, look, looking forward to that. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you so much, Toby, for really such an uh, excellent and interesting program. I really appreciate it. Um, and I think that with that, we're going to end the program. Thanks so much. Thank you.